Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 353, Mother of the Year. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Greta, Mark, and Dakota for signing up already. The medieval chronicler Adam of Bremen was writing at around this point in history. And among the many things he tells us, he also includes how Canute planned his almost empire. And Adam tells us that Canute intended Swain to rule Norway, Hartha Canute to rule Denmark, and Harold Harefoot to rule England. And that might be true. And if it was, Canute got his wish. At the time of his death, Hartha Canute was the king of Denmark. Swain had been the king of Norway, at least for a time. And just after Canute died, Harold Harefoot became the king of England. But there is a problem. Queen Emma. Now, Queen Emma has appeared in this story from time to time, and that's notable considering how sexist our sources are. The chroniclers, who tended to be monks, really couldn't be all that bothered with women. And this was exacerbated by the fact that English culture generally barred women from gaining direct access to power. And yet, the scribes could not seem to ignore Queen Emma. She appears multiple times throughout this period, and she is undoubtedly wielding significant power every time. We've seen her brokering important diplomatic deals, carrying out her own political agenda, and overall steadily advancing her position in the cutthroat world of medieval court. Queen Emma was a force to be reckoned with. But this also came with a cost. When a member of a marginalized group manages to gain power in spite of their society's efforts to stop that, well, society never thanks them for it. If you look at the accounts of the equally ambitious Earl Godwin, for example, we're told that actually, he was a great guy. He had a high moral character, he was strong, he was charitable. We're given all kinds of specific examples of how cool this guy was. But Emma doesn't enjoy that same treatment by the scribes. And this is probably at least in part due to the fact that she was a woman who had managed to claim real power in a society that didn't like women all that much, let alone one with power. But that's not the whole story either. When we look at the life of Queen Emma and her actions, her allies, even her enemies, we're clearly looking at the life of a noble who is at least as ruthless and unscrupulous as the men who are around her, and quite possibly even more so. For example, Thietmar claims that during his conquest, when Canute besieged Queen Emma in London, she responded to this by intending to trade the lives of her stepsons for her own. Now, luckily for her stepsons, that didn't work, but it's not exactly a good look. And then later, when King Edmund died and Canute became the King of England, Emma met with Canute, and it seems like she struck a hard bargain with the conqueror, arranging her own marriage and then ensuring that her children by Canute would be first in line for the throne. And this move, while it had obvious benefits for Emma, also had casualties. She already had two sons who were in line for the throne, and they were teenagers by the point of this new marriage, and they were the sons of her first husband, King Athelred, the man who had been continually under assault 
by the man who she was now marrying. And unfortunately for the boys, this marriage meant that they now had no political advantage. In fact, their mother had just made them a liability. I mean, if she was living in exile and wanted to get back on the throne, that would be one thing. Their claims to the throne would be incredibly useful. But instead, all these boys represented was a threat to her new husband's throne. And it was a throne that she now shared. So it's not like we could expect her to champion them at this point. And as far as we can tell, she didn't. In fact, Emma abandoned them and allowed them to live in exile under the tender mercies of the notoriously cutthroat Norman court. The fact is, Emma was a woman of action. And she had clear powers of persuasion and strategy. And she made bold move after bold move. And she was also ruthless. Now, of course, as a woman who wanted power, even as a noblewoman, she really didn't have much of a choice. Women didn't have cultural access to honor culture or formal inheritance or any other standard ladder to influence. Ruthlessness really was her only real path to any degree of power. And it was power that the male-dominated aristocrats were jealously guarding. In fact, even the fact that she became a queen was quite a hurdle for her, as the House of Wessex historically relegated the wife of the queen to a mere lady. They even have foundational myths defending this practice. So if you were a woman in 11th century England, and you made it to power, you would have had to have been ruthless about it. Even men couldn't play nicely in the merciless world of European politics. But if you wanted any degree of power as a woman, you almost certainly had to go harder. And the big difference between how the Chronicle speaks of Emma and how they speak of many of the male nobles of this same era is probably not that Emma was unfairly maligned. It's just that the ruthless scheming and the betrayals that were committed weekly by noblemen weren't particularly focused upon unless they ran starkly against honor culture, as was the case with Edric Strayona. So consequently, when the male nobles disinherit their own children, scheme behind the backs of their enemies, or climb the ladder to power without looking down on who they're stepping on, their actions are cast as pretty typical, or even in a worst-case scenario, just politely ignored. But Queen Emma, as a woman, does not get that kindness. And so while she was likely no worse than many of her male counterparts in the nobility, she probably wasn't any better either. The nobility of Europe at this time was ruthless. They were cutthroat. They generally didn't care what kind of suffering they were causing on their way to power and prestige. And Queen Emma was every bit a noblewoman. And she was good at it. And that was an enormous problem for King Harold. Because Emma hated Harold. And she had been a thorn in his side right from the start. She'd opposed his rise to the throne... She'd marshaled an enormous amount of political power in the South to that end. She'd forced him to accept her son, Harthacnute, as his overlord, or, at best, his co-ruler. And, as salt in the wound, she was now openly occupying his capital and was filling it with her own loyalists. And making her even more dangerous, she wasn't currently in power. And God help anyone who stood between Emma and power. And she still had cards to play. Obviously, a marriage wasn't going to work this time. But that wasn't the only way for her to circumvent the sexist world of medieval politics. She also had sons. Actually, she had a bunch of them. 
Hartha Canute was just the only one who was currently sitting on the throne. But she also had other sons, older sons, and they might do the trick. Now, England of the 11th century was a delicate balance between individuals that we broadly characterize as culturally Anglo-Saxon, which were most influential in the South, and those who we broadly classify as culturally Anglo-Danish, who were most influential in the region of the former Danelaw. And if you recall, the council that decided who would rule England was held at Oxford, and this was right on the border between Anglo-Saxon England and Anglo-Danish England. And that was done for a reason. If you wanted to be king of all England, you would better demonstrate that your background could bridge the gap between those two cultures. And new King Harold Harefoot was able to do exactly that. His mother was English, and his father was, well, Canute. And you might be thinking, well, that's settled then. Edward and Alfred couldn't bridge the gap because in addition to being raised in Normandy, they were the sons of Athelred. So they were English, not Anglo-Danish. Well, Emma's mother was a Danish noblewoman named Gunnar. And this is a family history that Emma herself was quite proud of. And importantly, it meant that her children, Edward and Alfred, were just as capable as bridging that cultural gap as Harold was, at least in the ways that mattered to the English court. Furthermore, when we look at the praise of Queen Emma, King Athelred is ignored. And it's written in such a way that you could actually infer that Edward and Alfred's father was actually Canute. And we know that that is untrue. But if people at the time were talking about Edward and Alfred as Emma's children, and Athelred wasn't being discussed as their father, well, it's possible that some people in the North might have gotten a bit confused and actually thought that Canute was their father. And this would have been an obvious mark in their favor. And considering that it's coming out of the praise, this is a storyline that Emma obviously wanted to push. Furthermore, Emma was already quite popular in the South as well, and she had the support of Canute's old right-hand man, Earl Godwin. So taking all this together, King Harold Harefoot was staring down the barrel of some serious trouble. And so the praise of Queen Emma tells us that Harold decided to take action. It claims that King Harold forged a letter in Emma's name and sent it to her sons, inviting them to come to England so they can make plans for their future, meaning plans to take the throne. The praise then tells us that, enticed by this letter, Alfred wanted to sail across the channel to meet with his mother, and Prince Edward allowed it. And with that, Alfred set sail. And let's pause here for a minute to consider the source. This is coming from the praise of Queen Emma, and the praise is the only account written at this time that makes this particular claim. No other contemporary record suggests that Harold forged a letter to entice the Atheling to England. And it's important to know that while Emma didn't write the praise, it does appear to be drawn from her personal perspective, and was likely even written under her supervision. And because of this, historians believe that they have a window into Emma's actual beliefs, or at least the story that Emma wanted to be out in the world. And read from this angle, the praise potentially reveals quite a bit about a real, living, breathing woman in the 11th century. A woman who appears to have really disliked her first husband, for example. Though that is understandable, just about everyone hated Athelred Unred. But what I really want to highlight here is that even in the praise of Queen Emma, 
we get a portrait of a noble woman who had a near singular focus on the pursuit of power and was often unscrupulous in that effort. The other aspect of the praise that is particularly important to this story is that Emma, and I can't say this enough, really hated King Harold Harefoot, who of course was the son of her rival, Elf Gifu. And yeah, Emma just absolutely loathed this guy. So what does this mean for the story of Harold forging a letter and luring Emma's son to England? A story that likely came from Emma herself as she commissioned the document that contains it. Well, possibly nothing. But possibly everything. The fact is that Emma is the only person telling us this story. And it's a story that deliberately paints her as completely innocent and her son as the target of dishonorable manipulation by her hated rival. And given that this is the same person who, in the same source, tried to convince us that Harold wasn't the child of Elf Gifu and Canute, but instead there was an elaborate baby swap, and actually Harold was the child of some random cobbler and an unnamed woman, and thus was completely illegitimate, and probably unloved, and definitely stupid, well, given that she's the one who told us that story as well, I'm not inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt here. It seems much more likely that if a message was sent to Alfred and Edward in Emma's name, it was because Emma had sent it. And why would Emma want her sons to come join her in England? Well, Emma held the capital. She also had an enormous amount of influence in Wessex. She had the support of Earl Godwin of Wessex, who was the second most powerful person in the kingdom during the reign of King Canute. And she really hated the current king of England, Harold Harefoot. And only recently, we know that King Harold's men seized the treasures of Winchester, which we can assume was the royal treasury. And that would have caused a rather drastic reduction in Emma's wealth, despite the fact she was holding the city. In fact, this was likely the first time in her adult life that she was truly out of power. And quite possibly, the first time that she'd been politically bested. And I imagine that she was like many people who grow accustomed to power and then find themselves stripped of it. I mean, that kind of fall is rarely ever taken well, and I doubt Emma was an exception to that rule. But she wasn't without options, and her best path to power was to put one of her sons on the throne. So she was down, but she wasn't out. And besides, she had the Husk Girls of Winchester answering to her, and she also had the support of Earl Godwin. And several accounts imply that Godwin's support was a critical aspect to the plan that Emma was pretty clearly hatching. Earl Godwin of Wessex was supremely powerful in the South, and he had vigorously supported Hartha Canute's claim to the throne. So if Emma and her sons wanted to make a play for the throne now, launching a war from the South would have made the most sense. And as Earl Godwin controlled Wessex, it's hard to imagine how any of this even if it was just a completely innocent mother-son get-together, would have been possible without Godwin's express backing. So yeah, let's just admit that Emma had plenty of reasons to want her sons to come visit her in Winchester. And so a letter was sent to Normandy, and it was in her name, and honestly, I'm pretty sure she sent it. And both the praise and the chronicle agree that her second son, Alfred, gathered some men together and prepared to make the crossing to England. But the real mystery here isn't the letter. It's why Alfred was the only one who was answering. 
Why wasn't Edward part of this journey, especially considering that he would have been the first in line for succession? Was he invited but decided he wasn't interested? That's possible. We do see other indications in the record that suggest that Edward didn't really seem to want to rule. It's also possible that Emma lacked confidence in her eldest and didn't think he was up to the task. It's notable that with Canute gone, she pushed for Hartha Canute to take the throne of England rather than Edward, her firstborn son. And then when that failed, the task appears to have fallen to her secondborn son. But it's hard to say exactly what happened here because none of our sources are telling us. But for whatever reason, Alfred left his older brother behind and he made the journey across the channel. But there's just one small problem with all of this. It is true that Godwin supported the claims of Hartha Knut, who was Emma's son by Knut. But it appears that his support didn't extend to other sons of Emma, especially her sons by Athelred. Godwin actually had a pretty big beef with Athelred back in the day. You might remember that his father, Wolfnoth, had been deprived of lands by Athelred, and he actually became a pirate as a result. Furthermore, Godwin was married to a Scandinavian noblewoman named Githa, who was from the line of the powerful Jarl Ulf. And it isn't hard to imagine that she may have had some influence in this situation, and that she favored Hartha Knut, who was half-Dane and politically linked to Ulf. Finally, King Harold had the support of the Witan. The council that had been formed at Oxford had chosen Harold as king. And the accounts that speak about Godwin specifically call out his character and his loyalty as part of the reason why he was so popular. So committing high treason, especially for the benefit of the line of Athelred, probably would have been a really hard sell for Godwin. But Alfred's ships were on the way. And before long, they appeared on the horizon. And his mother's ally, Earl Godwin, was waiting for him. And we're told that they intercepted the Athelings' forces and captured them. Now, William of Jumiege tells us that Godwin betrayed Alfred, which implies that his support was expected. And that could explain why Godwin was so easily able to capture Alfred and his men. Their guard was probably down. But the praise of Queen Emma goes into a lot more detail than that. The praise claims that Alfred landed in England, but soon was recognized, and so he retreated to his ships and sailed for another port. Believing that he lost his pursuer, he made landfall and began to march towards his mother. But before long, he was intercepted by Earl Godwin, who presented himself as a loyalist to the prince's cause. Godwin then proceeded to lead Alfred and his men to the town of Guildford, where the men then set up camp and proceeded to drink and feast well into the night, until everyone finally fell asleep. And then the praise claims that men who had thrown their lot in with the, quote, most abominable tyrant Harold, end quote, disarmed the sleeping drunken men and captured the entire force without a single battle. And this would point the finger at Godwin and his boys. And this capture and imprisonment at Guildford is corroborated in the Chronicle. So this probably did happen. Furthermore, both the Chronicle and the praise agree that once captured, Alfred's men met varying but grisly fates. Some were sold, some were blinded, some were hamstrung, and others killed. The praise actually goes into pretty gory detail on this, and the Chronicle gets downright poetic when describing the horrors that were inflicted on Alfred's companions. 
And the scribes of the Chronicle place the blame for these horrors squarely at Earl Godwin's feet. But they also tell us that as the cruel acts were meted out against his companions, Alfred didn't break. The scribes specifically praise Alfred's courage. So you have to assume that these acts were intended to inspire some sort of act or statement. But Alfred refused. As for Edward, well, he was nowhere to be seen. The Chronicle says nothing about his activities during this event. Later, Norman scribes, who are writing about a generation after these events transpired, give us the only potential story that we have. They claim that Edward gathered 40 ships in Normandy and crossed the Channel, either in response to his brother's capture or in concert with Alfred's crossing. The scribes also claim that Edward headed straight to the Southampton area, which would make a lot of sense as it was the most logical landing point if he wanted to go quickly from Normandy to Winchester. The Normans then add that Edward fought a battle against the local Southampton forces, and he actually won the day. But, seeing that he didn't have the support of the West Saxons, Edward realized he didn't have enough men to take all of England, and so he withdrew back to Normandy. And I'm not sure exactly what to think about this story about Edward. Because the scribes of the Chronicle don't mention any of this. And that's really weird, considering that they're actually pretty into this story. So into it, in fact, that they paused in the middle to include a little bit of poetry about how badly it went for Alfred. And if this show had another chapter, you would think that the scribes would have included it. Also consider the Normans. I mean, they were the ones writing the story, and they very much would have wanted to portray Edward and the later English crown as indebted to Normandy. Furthermore, the way the scribes talk about the size of Edward's fleet, the way they claim that even though he didn't end up king, he still won the battle, all of it feels a bit like the burnishing of Edward's reputation. So in short, this later story seems a little hinky to me. However, William of Poitiers and William of Jumièges are unlikely to have completely invented the story. So did this happen? Well, actually, possibly. And I think the best explanation for it is that Edward came over with some men, but not like 40 ships worth. And then the locals dealt with him the way they would have dealt with a Viking raid. And then upon realizing that he wasn't being welcomed with open arms, Edward retreated. I think that's plausible. In this much more humble scenario, it's possible that the scribes of the Chronicle were genuinely unaware of the Second Fleet, and it may have just been overlooked as one more Viking raid. Basically, just another day at the office. And only the Normans would have been aware of the real political implications of what happened there. Unfortunately, it's genuinely hard to know for certain. But regardless of whether or not Edward did make a crossing, Alfred was definitely imprisoned by the English crown. And at some point, he was removed from Guildford and taken to Ely for reasons that are unexplained. Now, a journey there would have taken several days on foot, probably around three or four if they were moving quickly. And on that journey, the king's men cut out Alfred's eyes. Now, by now, you know the significance of this move. In addition to being incredibly brutal and painful, by blinding the atheling, the king's men were directly attacking his right to the throne. Much like forced tonsuring, blinding had the effect of seriously impacting your claim to rule, as disability was something that the Witan considered when deciding a contested succession. And that makes it very likely that King Harold Harefoot was behind this attack. And the praise of Queen Emma makes it very clear that Emma had no doubts whatsoever that he was directly to blame. 
And it is quite clear from the contemporary record and just the circumstantial evidence that King Harold was well aware of what was happening with the Atheling and that his imprisonment was either directly ordered by him or at least consented to. And as King Harold was the man who stood to benefit the most from one less claimant to the English throne, well, yeah, this probably was carried out on his orders, or at least with his tacit approval. But here's the thing. We also know that Harold wasn't acting alone. In fact, so far, this entire operation had been carried out by Earl Godwin. So it's hard to imagine that he didn't carry some blame for what happened to Alfred. Was he the one wielding the knife? Who knows? But he almost certainly was directly involved in this in some way. And that question of who was behind the blinding of Alfred would have been of paramount importance for Alfred's brother, Edward, who was back in Normandy. Unfortunately, Alfred couldn't tell him, because this was the Middle Ages, and blinding wasn't exactly a sterile and safe procedure. So after staying with the monks of Ely for a period of time, we're told that Alfred eventually succumbed to his wounds and died. It's thought he died in February of 1037. Years later, when Godwin was questioned about the incident by Hartha Canute, Godwin claimed that he was acting under orders issued by King Harold, which is entirely possible. Though, what else would you say if King Hartha Canute was asking you who was to blame for the blinding and killing of his half-brother? So, looking at everything that happened here, it really does seem like this was likely a plot by Emma, and that out of desperation to maintain her status and position, and possibly out of an arrogant overestimation of her own influence, she made a daring but ultimately stupid gambit. And with Alfred dead and Edward in Normandy after a possible failed invasion, it was clear that this plan to retake the English throne had been an unmitigated disaster. If Emma thought that the English were willing to fight a civil war to restore the line of Athelred back to the throne, she had failed to reckon with how effectively Canute had managed to secure the throne for his dynasty. The English might argue over which son of Canute they wanted to lead them, but after the events of 1036, it was quite clear that the one thing they all agreed on was that it should be a son of Canute, not a son of Athelred, who wore the crown. Following the failure, the English nobility moved swiftly against Emma. They declared that Harold Harefoot was the sole king of England, and they justified it by stating that Hartha Canute had spent too long in Denmark, and as such, he'd given up his right to England. But I suspect that animosity towards his mother, Queen Emma, played a pretty big role in that decision. Because the Chronicle tells us that immediately following that decision, Emma left England. Now Emma, in the praise, insists that she withdrew diplomatically. But the Chronicle has a very different take. All the versions of the Chronicle agree that Emma didn't take a diplomatic retreat. Instead, they say the English drove Emma out of the country. And that even though it was in the middle of a raging winter, she had to get the hell out. Like, right f***ing now. Deprived of lands and titles, Emma then retreated to the lands of Count Baldwin V of Flanders, who was an extended relative of the House of Wessex, being the great-great-great-great-grandson of Alfred the Great. A lot of greats in there. And the record states that Baldwin treated her well. He gave Emma a residence in Bruges, he provided her protection, he made sure she was provisioned and well cared for, he even provided minstrels and other entertainment. And from Bruges, Emma summoned her son Edward. 
And according to the praise, Edward came as demanded. And once together, Emma spoke of her desire to retake England and place him on the throne. And you can imagine how Edward must have felt about that. The English throne had cost his father his life. His half-brother Edmund had died for the throne. His full-blooded brother Alfred had died over that same throne. Not only that, but he had personally found himself manipulated by the Norman court over the throne. And then, when he led a fleet to take the throne, he was blown wildly off course. And assuming that the second voyage actually happened, when he finally did make it to England, he was tossed out on his ear by the enraged locals. And this was all on top of the simple fact that this was being asked of him by his mother. The same mother who bailed on him over 20 years earlier and married the man who seized that very same throne. A mother who, despite the fact that Edward was the eldest, used all her political connections to put his baby half-brother, Hartha Canute, on the throne of England. A gambit that actually failed because Hartha Canute was in Denmark being a king and he was actually quite busy. He wasn't free to dabble in English politics, because while all this was happening, King Harthacnut was locked in a power struggle against King Magnus of Norway, and was trying to reassert Danish overlordship over the north. And only once it was clear that Harthacnut couldn't be used in Emma's power games, only then did Emma summon Edward and take an interest in him. And it wasn't like she did it to have a picnic or to catch up. She wanted him to do something for her. Possibly die for her. So if you were him, and you were looking at all the suffering that your family had endured because of the throne, would you really be all that excited to sacrifice yourself for it? The fact was that Emma was singularly focused on that damn throne, and by all accounts, she was utterly unscrupulous in the pursuit of it. But Edward wasn't. And to be honest, even if Edward did want the throne, how was he supposed to get it? He was just a guy who had been living in Normandy. What he needed was an army, especially considering that the English clearly had no intention of replacing King Harold Harefoot, and Edward didn't have an army. So Edward listened to his mother's request, and then he told her that he had no interest in the English crown, and that if she wanted it so badly, maybe she should ask that other son she seemed to like so much, Arthur Canute. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and you can join all our communities and you can sign up for membership by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and searching around and finding some links. Go find those links. Thanks for listening. Chain one.